0: on local now channel 525 today on cornerstone connection with pastor gary hamrick
1: you know he became that faithful high priest no more need for priests no more need for the high priest either jesus is that high priest to bring us to God and to make atonement. I love that word atonement. You want a simple, really kindergarten way of, of knowing what that word atonement means? It's a, a three-dollar word. Just think, at one, meant atonement by the shed blood of Christ means that God has made us at one. He's reconciled us with God. He has he has bridged the gap, and now there's not a there's not a distance. We are now at one. We are at peace. We are made right with God. This is
0: Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. Did you know that in Christ, you no longer need a mediator between you and God? In today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches that because of Christ's shed blood on the cross, he bridged the gap between you and the Heavenly Father. Pastor Gary teaches you that Jesus is your high priest. You don't need any other mediator. Jesus alone is enough. In Christ, you are no longer at a distance with God. You have been made right, are at peace, and are one with God through the loving work of Jesus. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews chapter two, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Verse
1: 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that that phrase there in verse 2, fix our eyes, it's a Greek word, aphoreo, and it literally means to look away from one thing and towards another. So it's this idea of here's all this, this compelling force that's working against us, friends. It's constantly working against us, whatever it might be in our world. And we're told here, one way to stay anchored, you got to stop looking at that stuff. I mean, to some degree, we, we can't. We're exposed to it constantly. But we can't be fixed on it. Okay, that's the idea. And turn away from that and turn towards the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Just constantly be keeping your gaze in the direction of the Lord. So between these two, got to fix our thoughts, our minds. we got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Those things will help us to stay anchored. So now we can go back to chapter 2 here. So So all of that to say that there's this potential for us to drift. We have to be very careful. Again, I don't believe it's a drifting... The argument here is not drifting into apostasy. It's, it's about neglecting our faith, not rejecting our faith, as we'll see here as we keep reading. But that, that verse 1, strong exhortation to us. And then verse 2, he says, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, so let's back up just a little bit. So verse 2, if the message spoken by angels was binding. Wait a minute. What was he talking about there? What message was the gospel ever delivered by the angels? What he's speaking of here, again, he's writing primarily to Jews, to Hebrew believers. He's recalling their own Jewish history. And what Paul lets us know is something that the book of Exodus does not, said Paul. We don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews or not. But by the Holy Spirit, what we've come to understand through the writer of Hebrews is that Moses received the law from the finger of God. Exodus 31 is pretty clear that the the Ten Commandments given to Moses, written by the finger of God. But it appears, and this is not the only verse, I'll give you a couple more examples, it appears that angels were involved in delivering the commandments of stone to Moses, written by the finger of God, delivered by the messengers of angels as like mediators in in delivering the commandments uh, from God to Moses. Let me give you a couple of other verses. So, as Stephen was being stoned in Acts chapter 7 verse 53, he said to those who were stoning him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed. So, even Stephen makes mention of angels being a part of delivering the law. In Galatians 3.19, Paul says, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. So it's kind of interesting. You look at Acts 7.53, you look at Galatians 3.19, you look at Hebrews 2.2, and it tells us that angels had some role in delivering the commandments from God to Moses. So, So the writer of Hebrews points that out. He says, the message spoken by angels was binding every violation of disobedience received as just punishment. So when the law was given, it's a clear explanation that God is just because we don't live up to the law. I mean, none of us live up to the law. And the Bible says, if you've, if you're guilty of breaking at any point, one law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. It's not like we're a little righteous. If you break any aspect of the law, we're guilty. And God is just in condemning us for our guilt because we sin against him. God is just in administering wrath. God is just in administering punishment. But now here's some good news. God is also just in his forgiveness. And the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it works both ways. He is just in his punishment. He is just in his forgiveness. God is just. And we all deserve punishment, but based on his grace, he also dispenses to us his forgiveness. But the point that the writer is making here is, listen, how can we escape the just punishment we deserve if we reject such a great salvation that comes through Christ? And why is it a great salvation? Because it's a great salvation because we have a great Savior who paid a great price for our great sin to forgive us of our great penalty, to offer us a great reward, which is the hope of a great heaven to live eternally with Him. That's why the writer says there, this is a great salvation. This is wonderful and, and on every level. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So eyewitnesses heard Jesus, saw Jesus. They then began to share this as eyewitnesses. And then verse 4, he adds, God also testified to it. God confirmed by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so, the Holy Spirit gets poured out at Pentecost, and signs and wonders follow okay they don't, it doesn 't lead the Word of God, the Word of God is out front, but signs and wonders can help confirm, can help add to uh, the miraculous, can contribute to just the the veracity and reliability of who God is as he demonstrates himself through various signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit, notice distributed according to His will, okay, First Corinthians chapter twelve eleven God distributes gifts of the Spirit as he wills. Not everybody has every gift, but collectively we have all the gifts. At the end of chapter 12, Paul asks a bunch of rhetorical questions. Does everybody speak in tongues? Does everybody prophesy? Does everybody have the gift of healings? They're all rhetorical because the answer is no. Not everybody does everything, but together collectively we have all the gifts. So don't elevate one gift over another, friends, all right? Don't elevate one. Seek the giver, Seek the giver. Don't don't be somebody who's like, I'm going to seek a a particular gift. Well, if it's necessary for what God might call you to, then that's one thing because you want to be equipped for what God calls you to. But ultimately, it really should be about seeking the giver and trust him to distribute according to his will. Let's keep reading here. Chapter 2, verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, But there is a place where someone has testified, colon, and then the writer of Hebrews is going to quote here from the book of Psalms. Now, I'd love, I underlined there in verse 6 where the writer says, you know, there's a place where someone wrote this, and he can't recall that it's actually Psalm chapter 8. The reason this is underlined in my Bible, have you you ever done that? You're like, somewhere in the Bible, it's like, I, I can't remember, it's just somewhere. And then you can quote it, but you can't really tell where it exactly... Has anybody else run into that? Okay good for you. It's okay. The writer of Hebrews doesn't know where it is and says, you know, somewhere else in the scriptures in the Old Testament, there's a place where someone has testified. And then he quotes here Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. All right, now pause here for a moment As I've mentioned to you before, prophecy of the Old Testament often has dual meaning. There is a near and there's a far interpretation and application. When you read those verses I just read, and it's it's out of Psalm chapter 8, there's a generic way to interpret it, and then there's a particular way to interpret it. The generic way is that he's talking, the psalmist is talking about humanity in general. You know, what is man? What is mankind? in general, that you that you, that you, God even care about, it, that you're mindful of any of us. You know, who are any of us that God should be mindful of us or even care about us? And it talks about how we were made a little lower than the angels. We were crowned with Him. With him. We were given glory and honor and put everything under His feet. In other words, mankind originally had the responsibility and the privilege of having dominion over the earth, of taking care of Of God's creation, and God created us in such a way that humanity was entrusted with some responsibility. So that's what the Psalm means in general. But in particular, it's a reference to Christ. It's a messianic passage that talks specifically what is man. The the particular man he's talking about now is Jesus, that you are mindful of him, the Son of Man. That's a messianic title, that you care for him. Now listen to this you made him a little lower than the angels. Wait a minute, are angels? More superior than Jesus? No, no, here's here's the idea. In his humanity, in his humanity, in that sense, sharing our humanity a little lower than the angels, but supreme to them, he's gonna gonna build on the argument. Just go with me for a minute. And then he's crowned, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, everything under his feet, everything's under the dominion of Jesus. And then he explains it a little bit more. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Now, this is specifically Jesus. It's not just generically mankind. He says, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. Okay, because we still live in a fallen world, and Jesus hasn't come again, and so the the fullness of our salvation has not yet been realized. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything subject to Him, but we see Jesus. It's the first time that the name Jesus is used here in the book of Hebrews. His name will, will be mentioned 13 times. This is the first time. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, okay, again, when he took on humanity, only in that sense, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, here's here's where he's going to go through the rest of the chapter. Chapter one, he's establishing the divinity of Jesus. Chapter two, he's now establishing the humanity of Jesus. Now, please everybody understand, Jesus was not half God and half man. In fact, there was this this false doctrine in the first century among Christians called docetism. And docetism basically taught that Jesus seemed to be human, but he wasn't really. And, And that just simply was a false doctrine. The Bible explains to us that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And it's a bit of a mystery to us, but he's not half and half. He's fully both. He's fully both, and so the writer of Hebrews is just establishing the identity of of God and the identity of Christ as God, that He's fully divine and fully human when He walks the earth here, and so He's going to express all this because even in this, He's greater than the angels, greater than the prophets, and so keep reading with me in verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, in bringing many people to faith, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, now it it wasn't that Jesus was imperfect and He had to be made perfect. It's just that, that the perfect plan of God was unfolded through the suffering of Christ, a.k.a. the cross. Jesus dies on a cross, and He's going to satisfy the wrath of God, and He's going to pay the price for us by His suffering. Okay, keep reading. Verse 11, "...both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy..." are of the same family. Okay, so he's talking about Christ here, the one who makes men holy, and us who are made holy are of the same family. In other words, humanity is emphasizing the, the, the human family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Okay, so again, he's establishing the humanity of Christ, fully God, fully man. Jesus. This is John 1.14, that the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, we deserve death, we deserve punishment, we deserve hell because of our sin. Sin is an affront, it's an offense to God, who is perfect and holy and righteous. None of us is righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory and perfect standard of God. So what God did in His infinite wisdom was to supply one who could satisfy the wrath of God, because none of us could. God looked over time and eternity, and He spanned the horizon of humanity. There wasn't one of us righteous enough to say, I'll pay the price for all of my sinful brothers. So God Himself, being perfect and holy and righteous and good, He comes, He takes on flesh, He says, all right, I'll become like you to die for you. So this was the plan of God, to redeem mankind, where God then purposes to take on flesh to join divinity with humanity, to merge it by coming, by placing the seed of God in the womb of Mary, to, to take on her DNA as part of the humanity, the part of flesh, comes, grows up, dies on a cross, suffers for us, so that by faith in His work, in His finished work, not the thing that we've done, but faith in His finished work, we might become saved, redeemed, forgiven, be able to go to heaven when we die. All of this accomplished to us by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, okay? And so He spells this out here, and He's saying this is through the suffering of Christ, that the sons of glory, that we might be forgiven, and He joins the human race so that He can be an effective and the only, one-of-a-kind, perfect sacrifice for our sins. The righteous dies for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Right? Amen? Praise God. That is the story of the gospel. And so this is what the writer is emphasizing here. And I love the way, and I underline this in my Bible, where, the way verse 11 said there, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them, meaning us, brothers. And yet how many, is, how many of us are ashamed to call him our Savior? Jesus is not ashamed of us. He died for us and he loves us. That verse just convicted me. So, you know, I don't know if it convicts you, but it's just this whole idea of, you know, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Why should we ever be embarrassed or ashamed to call him our Lord? And he says in verse 12, and now he's going to quote from three passages. He's going to quote from Psalm 22, Isaiah 8, and Isaiah 8 again. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, Isaiah 8, 17, and Isaiah eight, eighteen. And he he quotes, he says, the Messiah, through the Old Testament, says these things. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. And he says in verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, talking about us, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Now, hold on there for just a second because some of you might read this and, and you look at destroy him. So the devil's been destroyed. As if, is he saying the devil's been annihilated? Devil ain't been annihilated. Devil ain't been annihilated. Just look down your row. You know what I'm saying to you? No, that's cruel. Look, just watch. Watch, uh, watch your news. You can tell, right? The devil hasn't been annihilated. What he means it here is, is that he has rendered Satan powerless, okay? He has destroyed Satan's right to rule over man because that's, that's the right that Satan usurped in, in leading, originally, Adam and Eve astray and then th- thus the whole human race. Satan has constantly been, his game has been to rule over man. He wants to rule over you. He wants to own you. But Christ dies on the cross and sheds His blood as the purchase price to redeem you, so that Satan no longer can rule you, so He doesn't have ownership of you. That's the whole idea of destroying the work of Satan. Satan is, you know, God deals with Satan and eventually gets thrown into the lake of fire. But He's on a leash, but He's still out there and He still has His way in in the earth along with His little minions, the the demons, with Him. So I mean, you know, we we should be aware, but we shouldn't be afraid because. Greater is he, the Lord, in us than he that is in the world. And so part of what Christ has done is destroying Satan's grip on us, the power of death over us. Even though we shall all die, Christ has given us the opportunity through faith in him to have eternal life, that we go to be with him after we die. That's verse 15. And to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I had a lady come to me years ago, and this verse just ministered to her in such a great way because she had always lived with a fear of death. Even though she's a Christian, she's like, I'm just afraid of dying. And and she's constantly, constantly worried about dying. She said, I read this verse, and the Lord just totally freed me from the fear of death. You know, I think it is fair to say that even as Christians, it's okay to fear the process because it's an unknown. But don't fear death itself. Don't fear death itself. Francis Bacon once said that adults fear death like children fear the dark. Let it not be so. Not as Christians. We don't need to fear death itself. We might be a little apprehensive about the process, you know, and, and, and I, I have a few, you know, wishes, you know, Lord, I, please, I, I don't want the process to be going down in an airplane, eaten by a shark, or being beaten by a clown. Those are my three. <laughs> but other than that, you know, it's usually just the process. It's okay to be a little nervous about the process, but don't fear death itself. For let let's finish the chapter, verse 16, for surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's all of us, not just the Jews. We're all Abraham's seed. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. This is Jesus. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Okay, remember, Jewish mindset, reading this, written primarily to Jews, the high priest was one who stood in the temple as an intermediary between God and man. And the high priest would represent man to God and represent God to man. That was the role of the high priest. Jesus comes along, and later in chapter 8, 9, and 10, the writer here is going to say, Jesus is greater than any high priest. He is the high priest. There's no reason anymore for the priestly service because no one person is able to or has any authority to or any reason to stand in the gap between you and God. Jesus is the one who, for once and all, stood in the gap, still stands in the gap as the intermediary and the advocate for us between us and God. And so he's talking about how he, you know, he became that faithful high priest. No more need for priests. No more need for the high priest either. Jesus is that high priest to bring us to God and to make atonement. I love that word atonement. You want a simple, really kindergarten way of knowing what that word atonement means? It's a $3 word. Just think, at one Meant Atonement by the shed blood of Christ means that God has made us at one. He's reconciled us with God. He has has bridged the gap, and now there's not a a distance. We are now at one. We are at peace. We are made right with God. And verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's an interesting verse, and we'll compare it later to chapter 4, 15, when it talks about Jesus was in every way tempted as we are yet was without sin. You know, listen, you know what happens typically? We relieve our temptation by giving into it. It's not a good thing, but I'm saying that's a lot of the, the what happens. We relieve our temptation by giving into it. The reason why he says here Jesus suffered in his temptation is because he never gave into it. And so he, it was excruciating. So may we be encouraged by the example of Christ. Suffer. Like don't give in to temptation, right? Our goal should be, I want to follow the example of Christ and I want it to be excruciating, but I don't want to yield to my temptation. I want to follow the example of Christ.
0: That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Hebrews again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary's Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so you're able to keep up to date with every new program we post as soon as we make it available. You can even download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. In every circumstance you find yourself in. All this is found at our website. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd love to know how God is leading you and changing your heart. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We'd love that we can interact with our listeners and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests give us a call at 703-771-1500. We'd be happy to do our best to answer your questions and tell you more about this ministry, along with the church it stems from, Cornerstone Chapel. So don't hesitate to call. That number again is 703-771-1500. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.
1: That you've got no place to go But still you know